0: We already this evening have had a joyful service in that these songs have had such a tremendous message in them. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. We just sang that together and earlier, praise Him, praise Him, Jesus our blessed Redeemer. Certainly among those songs, we have been prompted and encouraged and motivated in our service to Christ. And I hope that tonight as we look at some more questions and answers, that will also be motivated by even some careful consideration of the Word of God. As often as we do these questions and answers, I try to begin each one of them in in a somewhat complimentary way, reminding each of us that it is you that select the topics on the nights like this one. It is you who ask the questions. These are not ones that I have selected or ones that I have chosen that I thought would be appropriate, but something that's prompted you to ask them. And I appreciate that very much. And as always, use that little box out there in the foyer. If you have a question, drop it in there. And we'll look forward to using that in our future questions and answer sessions as well. We're convicted that the whole purpose for having services like this one, A questions and answers session is that we absolutely believe that this book does have the answers within it to the questions that you and I would find needful as we journey from this life to the next one. And therefore, that text that we just noted, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That means for teaching. When you and I look then for those matters of instruction, it is to be found in this wonderful book. With that said, we come then to a a listing of questions that have been posed and asked, and so we'll look at those tonight. And our first question reads like this. This one's a bit lengthier, but nonetheless a very good question, and it reads as follows. When we consider the numerous congregations that wear the name Church of Christ, but compromise the truth on many things, namely worship, should we, as those that cherish and hold to the truth, see these individuals as brethren and members of the body of Christ, given that most of these individuals obey the gospel according to the truth? A very interesting question. Again, as you perhaps consider what was phrased, the individual asks, so given that there are many congregations who perhaps own the building have the phrase Church of Christ but yet that which takes place inside compromises in one way or another the biblical teaching. Should we consider those individuals as brethren? Should we consider them as members of the body of Christ? And if so, to what extent or what should be our obligation in that regard? Well, you'll notice on the slide behind me, let's begin to step through a few observations about the question. I thought that the person worded it in a very interesting and somewhat powerful way. And so I've selected a few of the ideas with the idea to develop some of those things a bit more carefully. First thing at the top, this individual highly recognizes the critical importance of biblical authority. That's the whole basis of why the question was asked. You and I know today that how critical that, I- that idea is. Whatever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. The words of Colossians 3, verse 17. And therefore, the person's exactly right in wishing to have Bible authority. But you'll notice the person highlighted, in fact, emphasized the name Church of Christ. That to me, it would seem, is also worthy of some interesting reflection. What organization, what name should we call the body that Jesus purchased? What name would be fitting? What name would be appropriate? The reason I raise that question, isn't it true that there are myriads of religious organizations that have selected various and sundry designated names? By now, you and I can already appreciate, if we're going to follow Colossians 3.17... Any name that's selected should be a name authorized by the Word of God, authorized by the authority of Jesus. I would ask you to note listings like this one. Perhaps you and I would do well to remember that the phrase Church of Christ isn't the only designation that does occur in the Word of God. For example, in Acts 11 verse 26, those disciples were simply called the church. It wasn't the church of Christ, it wasn't the church of God, it was just the church. There would be nothing particularly wrong with a group of disciples wholly following the New Testament, and they might and well just simply refer to themselves as the church. And there'd be nothing wrong with that. Furthermore, in third John verse six, again, it was merely the designation the church. That would be fine. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, there, those disciples were called the church of God. There would be nothing particularly wrong with that designation, given a caveat we're going to make shortly. Furthermore, the same thing occurs in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 1. There it's called the church of God at Corinth. Could you and I be the church of God in the pippin community? There'd be nothing scripturally wrong with that designation. Let's look even further. Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ. It has been that designation that has been the primary one really since the Restoration days forward that distinguished us from the Christian church, for example, as well as from a number of other distinguishing organizations. It is for that reason it would seem to me one ought to be a little cautious today, for instance, about selecting the church of God. Although that's biblical, that name, at least in the modern day, carries so much baggage from the Pentecostal movement that one could easily thus be a bit confusing to those who might have an honest inquiry as to what that organization follows. Certainly any group ought to be a bit cautious about that, it would seem. But furthermore, you might note this one in Hebrews twelve twenty three: The church of the firstborn... Could we, in fact, call ourselves by that name? It's scriptural. By now, I certainly think we could all appreciate this individual has rightly emphasized we beautifully wear the name Church of Christ because, again, Romans 16, 16 has given it as a scriptural name. And notice a number of other things about that name. First of all, the phrase of Christ indicates Christ bought it. Now, you notice if we use the name Church of God, that would carry a slightly different connotation. But literally, Jesus said, I'll build my church. It belongs to Him. It would seem to me no finer name than today could be selected than that one. And that name Church of Christ. Isn't it amazing then that the name that, for instance, we choose to designate ourselves by here quite often it will have within it a couple of ideas. The Church of Christ in the Pippin community, or the Pippin Church of Christ. Notice two things about that name. The Church of Christ designation highlights the fact we belong to Christ. He bought us, He's our foundation, He's our head. The word Pippin just identifies the community in which we happen to labor. The community in which we happen to meet. It would be useful to keep in mind the that twofold consideration of the name. It's in that regard, I suppose, many of the, the denominational bodies we could ask this question. The Gainsborough First Baptist Church, where's the name of Christ anywhere in that? The answer speaks for itself. I see the name Baptist, I see the name Gainsborough, I know where they meet. And I notice, at least historically, there was some reference to baptism, but there's no connection whatsoever to the fact Jesus bought it. No connection whatsoever to the fact that Jesus had anything to do with it. Seems to me that flies in the face of Colossians 3.17. Absolutely jettisoning and abandoning the truth of the authority of Christ. Let's go even further, though, in light of their question. You and I thus would never wish to choose a designating name that does not have biblical authorization. And therefore, back to the question at hand near the bottom of that slide. The God of heaven, through Jesus Christ of course, will allow each congregation to select that which they support and to select that which they permit to be taught In other words, although Christ founded it, and at one time perhaps faithful, absolutely, He will allow individuals to make their own choices. And so a congregation can go off in the wrong direction. Their leadership may lead them in ways that are not wholesome and in ways that are not consistent with the Word of God. And as tragic and as shameful as that is, God will permit it to happen. In fact, could I invite you to read in 2 Thessalonians 2 about congregations and individuals who would fit in that very category. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse number 9. "...even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth." That they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul speaks to that Thessalonian congregation and says, There are circumstances in which those who have selected and chosen of themselves to move in the direction of unrighteousness, he used the word twice in the passage. And God allows them to make the choices. He won't make us as robots to do His will. He lets us make that choice. And so back to the idea at hand. What about congregations that choose that which is not right? What about the church in Corinth? They were not even taking the Lord's Supper correctly. What was going on there? What about the church of Corinth in light again of the fact that they permitted divisions apparently to exist? They also allowed misgivings concerning divorce and remarriage, 1 Corinthians 7. They furthermore had some very terrible things concerning with respect to spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12-14. So here was a congregation. Paul wrote to them, urged them, warned them, admonished them but you'll notice he still did refer to them as having an anchor in what was the truth. Today, I would think it wise to say if a congregation has begun to uphold what is not biblically true, they've begun, for instance, to corrupt the worship in one way or another. Maybe they've allowed a female to preach before a mixed assembly. Our heart ought to go out to them. They have strayed from the faith. They may once have been faithful, but they at least at this point are not. One last thing on that slide may be this. When you and I then give thought to a congregation like that, notice again that as sad as that circumstance is, the question asks, how should we refer to them? The next slide will develop that a little bit more carefully, specifically with regard to this. If a congregation allows these things to take place, what should be said about each of the individual members? Could it be that some of them continue to be faithful? Could it be that some of them have held on to the truth? Would you turn with me to Revelation 3? We have a specific instance here that seemingly will help us address this matter rather completely. Jesus writing... Through John said, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Even before we go on, might we notice the church at Sardis had a name, they were living. I suspect the name Church of Christ was on the place of meeting, if you please, for the church at Sardis. But sadly, they were dead. On to verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments." and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Even in Sardis, there were some who Jesus said had not defiled their garments. There were some even there who had not compromised their allegiance to Jesus Christ, and they had not compromised their allegiance to the truth. Thus it would seem easy to say that just because the leadership in a congregation has gone in the wrong direction that doesn't necessarily mean that every member of that congregation has erred. Certainly we could say this. If a congregation with its leadership has begun to move in that direction, if an individual is able to go somewhere else, a faithful congregation nearby, then certainly they should try to do that. But remember, in that ancient day, there may well have been no other congregation in Sardis. There may have been no other choice, and one couldn't travel the long distance to the closest town back then. Today, we're in a bit of a different situation, aren't we? In Putnam County alone, there's about 60 congregations of the Church of Christ. In Jackson County, there's well over 20. In Smith County, again, a very large number you and I today would not be limited by that which restricted them so. We could easily thus make our way, it would seem, to a nearby congregation. Certainly it would be fair to say we ought to try to assist those in those situations, helping them understand that a worship that's misdirected, that a worship, for instance, that uses mechanical instruments of music, God doesn't accept this. And in fact, he would not consider that worship acceptable. And so in finality, what about the answer to the person's question? The person I ask, Should we, as those that cherish and hold to the truth, see these individuals as brethren and members of the body of Christ? They're wayward members of the body of Christ. And again, it would seem with those choices in mind, we could appreciate perhaps an opportunity to speak with them. As we've learned in Sardis, it may not necessarily be that all have gone astray, but in our day it certainly seems that it would be more likely than it was back then. It would be our goal to urge them, to pray for them, to try to help them appreciate the principle found in passages like this one. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul wrote, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Now Paul addressed that to the church at Corinth. You've got to come out from these practices which are not consistent with the teaching of the Word of God. You can have nothing to do with it in a sense of an unequal yoking. Hebrews 3.12 will close our discussion of this question. This question is one that perhaps leads us to a verse like this one. The Hebrew Christians to whom this book was written lead us to read this passage and to interpret it like this Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. An evil heart of unbelief. May you and I be cautious, very careful. Because after all there, you and I could choose to allow an evil heart of unbelief to to dwell within us and to depart from the living God. You might note the word depart. How serious it would be. How tragic it would be. And so I hope that we've done at least some means of consideration of our question. It's a multifaceted question. And it certainly is one that has a lot of danger points within it for each of us to consider. The second question is a rather different one. It's rather brief, actually. Let me simply read it. Since the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, then did they only worship to avoid God's wrath in this life? Isn't that an interesting question? Do you appreciate the thrust of the individual's question? Since it was the case, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or things beyond this life. Then why were they motivated to serve God at all? Was it only to avoid His wrath in this life? A very good question. Let's try to use some aspects of the Word of God and see what it has to say that might point us at least in the right direction. On the slide, I've asked you to appreciate a few comments about the Sadducees. We remember that as the New Testament opened, we suddenly encounter a number of religious organizations, that is to say religious groups, that we did not see in the Old Testament. Never once do you read Pharisees in the Old Testament. Never once do you read about Sadducees in the Old Testament. Never once Essenes. But suddenly, as we come to Matthew 1, it isn't very long before we encounter all of these groups. Where did they come from? They all arose, by and large, in that period of time between when the Old Testament ended and when the New Testament began. That is to say, between Malachi and Matthew, we have the rising of a number of interesting developments that ultimately are very important as you and I study the New Testament. You'll notice on the second point on that slide, as far as what these individuals believed, remember that they typically were in opposition to the Pharisees. And I don't don't want you to take that the wrong way. It's not that the Pharisees believed in God, but the Sadducees didn't or anything like that. But they held a very different viewpoint in regard to Scripture. The Sadducees believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were the basis upon which everything must rest to the point where they really only looked intently at those five books. They saw those books and those only as the reason for the example of and the command of God relative to the keeping of any things in service to God. So notice, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As far as the Sadducees were concerned, all those books after that, like Joshua and Kings, and all the books of poetry, and all the books of prophecy, those were much less important. So much so that they often gave very little interest in them. The Pharisees were very different the Pharisees not only had an interest in those first five books, but they also agreed that the latter books also were very important and were very much worthy of study and worthy of appreciation. With that little highlighted difference made, the Sadducees, as you can probably tell from their name, one can only wonder, did they trace their origin, their history, back to one of the priests during the time of Solomon. Zadok was his name. You and I read about him actually in the days of David and Solomon, but it would seem as though the name from Ezekiel 44.15 and Ezekiel 48.11, that may well be the place that they traced their ultimate name to. The Bible doesn't come out and say that. But with that in mind, know what comes next. As far as their beliefs, the person who asked the question was right on target. Would you turn with me to Acts 23 verse 8? We have here the clearest exposition, although not the only one, but at least the clearest exposition of the main doctrines that the Sadducees believed in. It says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. So again, note with me, the, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't even believe in spirits. Therefore, isn't that a very good question then that our querist has asked? If they didn't believe in a resurrection, what they think was going to happen when you die? What they think was going to happen at, say, a far later time? They apparently didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in many of the particulars that you and I would wonder about. May I suggest to you that there was one occasion when a Sadducee came and asked Jesus a question, and you remember it well. This Sadducee, remember, was so convinced that there was no resurrection that he said there was a man who passed away and left his widow behind, and this guy had a brother who married the woman. And that went through seven brothers, and then the Sadducee asked Jesus, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? You see, the Sadducee was just sure that the Lord could not possibly have a respectable answer to that question. And yet in Matthew 22, not only did Jesus answer it, He thunderously answered it. In fact, we're going to look in some detail in just a moment at a part of what the Lord's answer was. Let's you and I close that slide and note this. In light of putting together the things that we've noted so far, the Sadducees felt as if the first five books of the Old Testament did not lead to the conclusion that there's a resurrection. In Genesis through Deuteronomy, they could not find, at least in their mind, a respectable set of verses that led to the conclusion that there was life after death. That was the Sadducees' perspective. And yet, in that discussion, how did Jesus answer the Sadducees? Let's turn back to the passage and look in some detail at it. I've actually asked you to consider it on on the next slide. In Mark chapter 12, let's look at Mark's version of this particular question. Mark 12, verses 18 and following. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. Again, the question about the seven brothers who all had this same woman to wife. As you come to verse number 23, they ask Jesus this question. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And now the Lord answered like this. And Jesus answering said unto them, "'Ye, do ye not therefore err, "'because ye know not the Scriptures, "'neither the power of God? "'For when they shall rise from the dead, "'they neither marry nor are given in marriage, "'but are as the angels which are in heaven. "'And as touching the dead,' That they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto them, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do do greatly err. There are several things worthy of comment about that. First of all, could I direct you to notice in the Lord's answer He directly identified the existence of angels. He said, there are angels in heaven. He went on furthermore to say, there will be a resurrection. Now can you imagine this Sadducee's reaction as he stood there and heard Jesus say this? And what in fact was the final point? Did you notice the scripture that Jesus used to highlight the truth? The Sadducees didn't think in Genesis to Deuteronomy there was anything that taught a resurrection. And yet, the very text of the Old Testament that Jesus used, He didn't choose something out of Kings or Samuel or Chronicles or even the prophets. He picked Exodus. Now you and I know why. You see, a Sadducee believed in the book of Exodus. Exodus. In fact, ultimately withstood in character the thoroughness of what it taught. And in that book, Jesus quoted from chapter 3, the scene at the burning bush. And did you notice? There, as in that burning bush, the text was in fact affirmed before Moses, through that bush it was said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The entirety of the Lord's answer at least in emphasis for the Sadducee, hinged on the tense of the verb. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am. Present tense verb, they're still alive. But they've been dead hundreds of years, exactly right. And they're still living in the realm beyond this one. The fullness of the Lord's answer in absolutely crushing the Sadducee's question And the perspective that he offered hinged on the tense of the verb that Jesus used. Now, as far as back to what they actually believed, the person has asked a fantastic question. Since they did not believe in the resurrection, all of the references that I've been able to find, including Josephus, pointed out that the reason that motivated the Sadducees in light of what it was, was they thought their reward was in this life only. They gave no thoroughness, no impetus, no motivation to the life beyond this one. Isn't that sad? I'm reminded of Paul's statement. Aren't you in 1 Corinthians 15, 19? If in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we are of all men most miserable. I would say that that's the reason the Sadducees tended to be wealthier. The wealthy class tended to be the Sadducees. They had the money, and they thought that was God's blessing upon them here and now. What a sad thing must have been the case one second after they died to realize that everything they'd worked for, they'd left behind, and there was a life after death. So may I say sometimes at VBS... We teach our children to sing. I'd rather be a goat, I'd rather rather be a sheep, but not a Sadducee. Because, you see, they're so sad, you see. And you and I now know why. Question number three of the night. This too, an interesting question and very brief. The question reads as follows. Should Christians observe Halloween? Should Christians observe Halloween? Isn't that an interesting question? After all, only a couple of weeks ago, that was, in fact, a very notable point of observance. We see lots of youngsters who dress up in one fashion or another, and they go about asking for candy. Should Christians observe Halloween? Partly, I suppose, this was motivated to the person who asked it because of a publication. I'd like to share with you a a reading out of this publication. Halloween is filled with all sorts of pagan characters and customs that Christians need to avoid. Friend, Halloween is satanic. You may pretend that it's a harmless game for kids, but in reality, it represents paganism, satanism, human sacrifice, torture, rape, murder, idolatry, witchcraft, and spiritualism. Did you know that October the 31st is considered by many Satanists to be their most important day of the year? Friend, wake up! Don't honor the devil. Honor God instead by refusing to observe Halloween this year. The Lord Jesus Christ wouldn't dress innocent children up like devils of hell and march them around town, so why should you? Are you a true follower of Jesus Christ, then skip Halloween this year and tell others to do the same. Should Christians observe Halloween? As you and I look at some things from the Word of God in light of that question, let me preface it by saying there are some ways in which even groups of people who claim to follow Jesus Christ have gone very far astray when it comes to Halloween. Let me give you some examples. There are groups of people who call themselves a church who on October the 31st or the closest Sunday to it, they will preempt their services and have cars in the parking lot and all the trunks opened up and so all the kids come to services dressed up that night. And rather than having a worship service, they simply go around and gather candy. Now that is wrong. That is just absolutely wrong, to preempt the worship services of the Lord, or even Bible study, and substitute it for something like this. And so with that, I guess, stated, we might now ask it this way. What about on Saturday? So could a Christian family allow their boy or girl to dress up as a ghost or some other character and go around on Saturday and ask for candy? In fact, enjoy a time of fun and entertainment that way, as long as it doesn't interfere with the services of the church or interfere in any way with what otherwise would be the church's activity. This is a very good question, and it's one that's quite deserving of, of some attention. And so, I've asked you to consider, in many ways, what almost seems like a larger discussion than this one. This question directly it asks about Halloween, but there's a lot of other holidays during the course of the year. What about Christmas? Now, most would say there's a world of difference between Christmas and Halloween. Isn't Christmas a time to celebrate the birth of Jesus? Well, I might say the Bible never puts it that way. In fact, the Bible doesn't talk anything about the celebration you and I now call Christmas. Or what about another one? What about Valentine's Day? I realize quite often we use that as a time to at least honor our spouse. And if it's just boyfriends and girlfriends, no, you know they honor one another with love that day. But are you aware that the history of Valentine's Day goes back to a Catholic person named St. Valentine? It actually has Catholicism behind it. So does that mean it's wrong to celebrate Valentine's Day? Is it wrong to give your wife flowers or candy? Is it wrong to go out to eat that night and just enjoy the love that you share one with the other? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? Before our time gets away from us, let's at least develop some thoughts about not only Halloween, but maybe some of these other holidays as well. I would at least offer one additional thought as we begin to discuss this. And it has to do with my strong suspicion is that whoever wrote the tract that was handed to me and was used as a part of the question, likely the person was extremely inconsistent. Probably for the following reason. What about the months of our calendar year? January, February, March, and April, and all the others. Are you aware of the fact that almost all of those names go back to the times of the Roman Empire and often have their basis in Roman mythology. Or they are directly that which honors one of the ancient Roman emperors. July is named after Julius Caesar. Augustus is, named, is the name for August. October goes back to Octavian. As you and I make reference to any of those names, in many cases we are directly honoring an ancient Caesar, but some of them, in fact, go directly back to the various gods of the Roman Empire. So should we use those names? It gets even worse when you come to the days of the week. Monday honors the moon. Thursday is the ancient god of war named Thor. Saturday, same idea. Are we thus going to be consistent and outlaw Halloween, but yet still use all these days of the week? The question is going to take us to this consideration. And I've asked you to note early on that slide, it's entirely possible for a given practice or a given word at one time to have a certain meaning or connotation behind it. But over the course of time eventually it may come to pass that that word no longer has the connotation it once had. And it does not identify the same thing it once did. For example, look on this slide. I would offer that in the Bible this very thing happened. And we have scriptural evidence to this. Consider 1 Corinthians 8. There, there was an absolute circumstance in which... Meat had been offered to an idol. Now you and I would immediately say that was wrong. A Christian could not support idolatry and not be a servant, faithful servant to Jesus Christ. And yet, this meat had been offered to an idol, but yet, with the excess of it, those priests, after keeping their amount of it, they'd sell the rest of it in the marketplaces and individuals could come and purchase that meat and then eat it at your own house. Not near the idol's altar, not near anything about the pagan temple, but just at your house. Was that meat still contaminated? Though it had once been offered to an idol, could a Christian later partake of it without any association to the idol? Absolutely. Paul said so in 1 Corinthians 8. He told them the idol is nothing, and we know it's nothing. But he was quick to say this. If it causes a brother to stumble, if eating that meat does cause a brother to stumble, then you ought not to eat it. You ought to have refrain from it. What's that principle then for us today? As we think about Valentine's Day or Halloween or something like that, there may have been a time four or five hundred years ago when that day of the year was a particular time on which there was an honoring of the dead, there was this idolatrous activity that was rather pagan in its history, but that day today has no association like that. And if you and I allow our son or daughter to dress up like that and go get candy, there ain't anything wrong with that. So long as, so long as we're careful to appreciate that we are not using that as a religious activity. And furthermore, if it does defile the conscience that I've got to stay away from it. Paul did say in Romans fourteen twenty three, For whatever is not of faith is sin. If it bothers my conscience, then I shouldn't do it. But it would seem to me the Bible does say, as you and I close that slide and leading on into the next one, that celebrated religiously it would be wrong because of passages like Colossians 2. But the personal judgment would lead us to say that there's nothing improper about it, so long as we do not instill within it religious character, and we do not use it to in fact define or set that as a basis. As we close that slide, we close our three questions of the evening. I hope then we can say, there ain't anything wrong with taking your wife out to dinner on Valentine's Day. <laughs> there isn't anything wrong with enjoying a time of Christmas so long as we don't make that a religious holiday? For after all, as you and I have noted in sermons past, Jesus wasn't born on December the 25th. In fact, from all scriptural evidence, He wasn't even born even that t- season of the year. It would seemingly be that Jesus was born at a very different time of year than that. And perhaps, if we need to consider those matters again, we'll be happy to do that. But for right now, let's offer an invitation, perhaps stated like this. We love the Word of God, and we're convinced that it does have within it the answers that can guide our way and can lead us to appreciate and to live in the way that God would find most pleasing. It might be that in this group of people tonight, there could be someone who, upon consideration of your life, though once a faithful Christian, tonight you're not. And it's not that the Lord moved, but you did. You chose things that weren't consistent with His will. If we could help you tonight by praying on your behalf, by encouraging you, it would be our delight. If we could be of help in that particular way, we would urge you to come and do so at once while together we stand and sing.